this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you can get free bonus episodes and audiobooks. Greetings from New Caledonia on the Slow Boat. This is Linus Wilson, and you're listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to talk about uh, the part-time around-the-world trip, and in particular, the goals of Season 4, goals made, goals accomplished, and give you a quick summary of uh, Seasons 1 two, three, and four, while talking more in depth about the offshore sailing in season four. I'm not going to bring on a guest for this. We have lots of episodes that I uh, want to edit, just haven't had the time to. Uh, If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, or read one of my books. That would also be helpful. They're available on Amazon. Now, Slow Boat to the Bahamas is available to Amazon Prime users, not just Kindle Unlimited subscribers, not just Kindle buyers. Uh, So that's a big bonus. But we're a long ways from the Bahamas here. Uh, We're about 30% around the world from the Bahamas to be honest, that was actually the farthest east point for the slow boat uh, under my sailing it and uh, my family sailing it. And we're at our farthest west point, which happens to be in the eastern hemisphere. So one of the big goals for this season was to enter the eastern hemisphere, goal made, goal accomplished. The slow boat, uh, its home port is 90 degrees west I think Georgetown Exumas in the Bahamas uh, that we talk about in Slow Boat to the Bahamas, about 75 west. We're at like 170 east or even further east. Uh, We're done with the Western Hemisphere. We crossed into the Eastern Hemisphere on the first offshore passage of this season four. We started out in Tonga. Some of you might have seen the whale swim video I did in Tonga. I also did a video about the boatyard in Tonga and a cyclone, which is something like a sub-gale, according to like maybe uh, Western Hemisphere scales. So they have kind of different measures for what a cyclone is in uh, the South Pacific, in Tonga in particular, and maybe Fiji, and also maybe Australia, New Zealand. I'm not sure. Uh, And it's not necessarily hurricane force. So that video you can see on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel shows you the boatyard in Tonga as the whale swim video. Not many of you folks saw those videos, so this is probably the first you've heard about it. So if you wanted to get that sneak peek of season three... Uh, which has not come out. I'm sorry, the, the the video stopped towards the end of Season 2. I plan to finish off Season 2, and it's my hope to have the videos of Season 3 out starting this fall, but we will see. There's always another video I can think of that more of you will watch uh, than our vlog, so that's why I don't uh, put it out. So uh, what have we been doing? We sailed from Vava'u Tonga, to New Caledonia, Nomia, and that's where my favorite ladies, Jana and Sophie, 
are going to join me in a few days. We just had our volunteer crew member, Alex, who did all three offshore passages like a champion uh, on the slow boat. He just left to uh, move to land life and hike the hills of New Caledonia. He did a great job this season, and I'll talk about our passages together. We start. We really started. Uh, he joined the boat for a month. He was there for a month, just a little bit over a month, and we started doing offshore passages for less than a month, and we did three in less than a month. Uh, so I'm picky about my weather windows. I'm typically looking for uh, less than 20 knots of wind, less than or no more than 20 knots of wind, or less than force six conditions. So force one through five conditions forecast, and two to three meters waves maximum forecast. And that worked out. I would say if you look at the passages, uh, the first passage from Vavau Tonga to Fiji, that was the most traditional downwind passage. We got to use uh, the stay sail and the new inner forestay, a new addition to the slow boat. So the island packet 31s, a lot of them are cutter rigged, but a lot of them are also sloop rigged. It's a, It was an option. Some owners that bought the new ones bought it with the sloop rig. Some bought it with the cutter rig, typically with the Hoyt boom. I don't want to have a Hoyt boom. I just wanted an inner forestay for downwind sailing because I wanted to go wing and wing instead of just having one wing. Uh, I find the, the main to be very inefficient downwind rig on offshore sailing because of the wave action. So big waves uh, mean that you, your angle of the wind tends to, to go 20 to 30 degrees. And what I say by big waves is bigger than harbor waves, i.e. typical ocean waves are going to be two to three meters, uh, even in the trade wind belt. So the nice sailing belt versus kind of the Southern Ocean, where typical is going to be maybe five to six, two to three meter waves are going to have a 20 to 30 percent move in the apparent wind angle because you're moving with the waves. Uh, and so the main is not very effective. Backwinded main is terrible terrible offshore. We kind of went into that with one of my very popular videos about uh, the, the terrible, deadly consequences of it, having the main way out uh, for the uh, disaster of the multi-million dollar Platino sailboat. You can see that on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. I typically keep the main sheeted in because the backwinded main is such a terrible thing, even with a preventer. Uh, and so I find the down, d dead downwind, a pulled out Genoa pulled out a uh, stay sail. Now that we have a stay sail, it's much more efficient if you're running dead downwind. I don't like to do jiving angles. I don't like to. I don't like to deviate from the rum line or the the great circle arc. You know, I'm just kind of conservative that way. That I think that the shortest distance between two points is a great circle or a straight line if you're on a flat surface. So uh, that, but you know, there are you know there are arguments to be made. Uh, you know, if people have wind vanes and they'll always sail a wind angle they'll never sail a rum line or a great circle course we sail electronic autopilots which worked like champions this season we had all kinds of trouble with the wheel pilots the raymarine wheel pilots we had kind of i think a lot of the problems last season were due to the the 
the protrusion that kind of turns it uh, from the the mounting was was poor and it was wobbly. We got rid of those wobble problems. Uh, for the first part, we had a, a new protrusion that I made up the last season that was also tied down a little bit tighter with one of Alex's uh, expert Boy Scout knots. And then after that, I found a way to get in the binnacle and put a um, backing nuts and bolts onto those protrusions so that it wouldn't wobble. And we also had like, we refurbished four or five of those wheel pilots over the off season, only had to use one of them. None of them burned out, and that was great. We even got a below decks autopilot we never used this season, uh, but we're going to make sure that that's functional for the Indian Ocean crossing and hopefully also for season five. Uh, but so... Uh, first passage was downwind. A Fiji passage gave me the most worries of all, right? Uh, because Fiji has a lot of reefs. Uh, and I originally wanted to go to Savu Savu. I decided against that because the path to that from Vava Utonga was just fraught with reefs which were poorly charted. And the, the thing is, you know, it's one thing to have a reef entrance right before you make landfall. But if you have, you're entering a reef like a day before you make your final landfall, that is a lot of pressure on the skipper. You have to have, you have to be a hundred percent confident and your crew that they are not, they're going to do everything right. And really with a reef, you need everybody's eyes on it. Uh, and you need to do it during daylight, right? And if it's going to take more than 24 hours to get from your first reef to to the place where you drop anchor, you have a real problem there. And that was the problem that I think going straight to Savu Savu was a problem. So after a lot of consideration in the off season, I found that sailing to Suva was the safest way to go and not sailing the most direct route to Suva, but sailing the safest route to Suva. You know, that being said, uh, we had a downward passage. Um, it went pretty well. I think uh, we had some large waves on the three meter scale, uh, but it was pretty good. It was pretty much champagne sailing the whole way. Uh, the only problem was once we started getting into the kind of the island portion. So the other problem is you've got ports of entry, right? So ports of entry often are not the first places that you're going to hit in a nation. So uh, in Fiji, there's the Lao group, which is in the way that you're not allowed to stop in. The next port of entry is like hundreds of miles away. You start entering those reefs, you start entering the kind of more coastal cruising region, and that that's a real problem. Uh, the other thing is kind of just timing it so that you time your port of entry in the morning uh, so after three days at sea it was my decision that we were having charging problems with the engine uh, which was due to belts which i ended up tightening when we stopped uh, and we we're also just getting tired and there are lots of places good places to anchor but there's no ports of entry uh, so just i just anchored at one of them and that was a really good decision because when we did do the overnight passage to suva so we could arrive there in the morning it was a very difficult overnight that it it really taxed me as the skipper 
because right uh when i'm on watch obviously i'm awake and when i'm off watch my crew member is told to wake me up when they see ships that is they see lights on the horizon and as you get to the capital city you're going to see a lot of lights on the horizon and as it turns out most of those ships are poorly lighted they don't even have red and green lights so that you can tell if you're looking at their port side or their starboard side and the other problem as we entered Suva, they're also kind of like turning around the coast. So they're not keeping constant, they're not keeping a constant course. It was so dangerous. Uh, and it, it was a very tiring night. And had I not had rest before that, uh, that would have been very difficult to do. Uh, but we entered Suva uh, at about 7 a.m. through the reefs. Uh, Suva Harbor has a kind of notorious reputation as a bad anchorage. I did not find that to be the case. We anchored by the Royal Suva Yacht Club there and uh, in, a, in about 10 feet of water, and we held perfectly. I think one of the problems is the South Pacific cruisers get in the habit of putting out four to five uh, to one scopes, which is just a bad, bad habit that they anchor in too deep a water, and they don't put out enough scope. And if I just walk around most marinas, I find that, or the current marina I'm at, let's say, I find that my anchor on my primary anchor is a lot bigger in comparison to my boat uh, than a lot of other boats anchors is and that's one of the reasons why it holds besides its superior design uh, so putting out scope having the right sized anchor the too big anchor we held perfectly and that was one of the kind of calmest anchorages we had but I'll, I'll admit that we didn't have terrible conditions while we were anchored in Suva for a little over a week. Okay, so I'll take a, just a step back. We started from New Orleans, uh, season one. We went south. We sailed to Florida, to Cuba, to Providencia, to Panama, to Ecuador. Season two, we sailed from Ecuador to the Marquesas, from the Marquesas to Fakarava and Tahiti. In season three, which is not on the vlog yet, uh, we sailed from Tahiti to Raiatea to Bora Bora to Aitutaki in the Cook Islands, and then to Tonga Tapu, and then I solo sailed from Tonga Tapu after Jan and Sophie joined me in Tonga Tapu. Tonga, the capital of Tonga, is Nukalofa in the island of Tonga Tapu. I sailed up to Vava'u where we hauled out. So we've done haul outs in Ecuador, in the Marquesas, Hiva'oa, uh, in Tahiti. We did a very quick haul out in Raiatea to change a seacock, and uh, we did a long-term haul-out in Vava'u, Tonga. So we've had three uh, long-term haul-out, La Libertad, Ecuador, Hiva'oa, and Tahiti. Actually, four in Vava'u, Tonga, right? The season two was kind of an extra-long season because it started in December uh, and then went to the following uh, July or August. But season three was kind of normal size season as is season four. Uh, we planned to haul out here in New Caledonia 
a French overseas territory. You might call it the Papiete West. Okay, so going back to Suva, that first offshore passage this summer, this North American summer, this winter in the South Pacific. Um, Suva is an interesting city. I really liked Suva. I personally like Suva. It's a big city. There's a lots of things you can do. There's some good chandleries there. The food is better than Tonga, but not very good. So it's not like the Papiete level provisioning, but everything is very cheap. The internet is very fast. The internet's very inexpensive. We've got 4G LTE. I probably had more data than I do normally in Lafayette, Louisiana, and we've got like fiber optic cables and the unlimited plan with AT&T and the U.S., uh, but it, it was very inexpensive uh, data there. And it's, it's a cosmopolitan city. Uh, you know, Suva is interesting and Fiji is interesting because it's uh, very multicultural. They had kind of, they have the Polyne- the native Polynesians, right? They have the Melanesians that were imported uh, in a not so n- not so nice way way back when the Indians who were came uh, originally as indentured servants, and so you have kind of a very multicultural uh, place, which is uh, you know I think works really well, and I think it's a you know uh, Suva is a great place, is a great city. I liked it a lot. Uh, people that don't like cities aren't going to like Suva. I thought the Suva Yacht Club was very nice. You know, one of the nicest full-service yacht clubs I'd seen. We anchored out. We didn't. I joined the yacht club, but I didn't. I didn't pay for a mooring or anything. I think they may only have one mooring. That their marina is is really shallow. The entrance to the marina, I think, you can only get in there at high tide, regardless of what your keel is. And they didn't have space, so I didn't. I didn't end up going into the marina, but it was just as well. We were very happy, I think, at anchor there uh, to get the dinghy dock privileges. You do have to pay kind of the foreign membership fee, which is uh, definitely worth it if you're going to uh, use their dinghy dock and stuff. So I, I liked it. I, I, I was looking to leave as soon as possible. I felt like we were kind of late on the season. Um, in Vava, ooh, we got a new stove. Our stove just kind of like died last season. It was just falling apart. So because of the rust, it just had completely rusted out. So we got a new stove in uh, Vava, ooh. And then, so that was great to have. And and uh, we had, everything uh, was pretty good, except the weather reports were bad. So I was thinking that we could leave fairly soon from Suva and then go to Vanuatu or go to New Caledonia. Uh, but as it turned out, there was some sort of really big disturbance that was creating like five meter waves in a p- place where really it should be typically two to three meter or one to two meter waves. And so we had to wait a long time for that. But that also gave me a lot of time to kind of ready the boat. Uh, and, you know, once I, I, I think maybe we were there for less than a week in uh, Vava'u. I think the, our biggest complaint about Fiji was it was fairly bureaucratic to check in. We had to wait like eight hours for the all the people to come to clear us to allow us off the boat. Uh, so it, you couldn't like check in by going to the offices. They came to you and you had to go out. So that was very much like Ecuador, Cuba, although in Cuba they did it right away in our case for me and Stevie's case. But it was good, and uh, then we ended up going up the coast. 
the thing about the the big island uh, so we went to the big island on in suva v2 levu where suva is uh is in the big island in fiji it is big it's really big it's a lot bigger than tahiti uh it's you know it's one of the biggest islands in the south pacific it takes a long time to get around that island so it took us like two or three yeah i think it took us we rushed it we really rushed it it took us three two days full two full days to to get from suva to the west side of the island and behind the reefs and we were doing that because we were expecting big swells to come those swells that were keeping us from going offshore we also didn't want to experience while coastal cruising or trying to go through reef passes and so we made it to mommy bay in two full very full days of uh, day cruising uh, along the coast. Uh, you know, my preference was I would have broken that up into three, maybe four, maybe just had a stop where I stayed for some days at like this Robinson Crusoe Island, which we didn't end up stopping at. Uh, but uh, the, so we did that. And then from Mommy Bay, we went to Musket Cove Yacht Club, which has a very, very tricky entrance in there. Th- that was pretty scary is pretty indifferently marked and pretty confusingly marked i think but we did make it to a mooring in the end it did not hit the reefs in the end uh but uh we definitely did that in the daytime and that was scary in the daytime uh but once we were there that is a very nice place you know it's kind of like a honeymoon type resort i would say uh not that expensive it's a very good deal for uh yachtsmen and women who'd stop there and they it's a full service yacht club similar to the Royal Suva Yacht Club and just a nice place. We could have spent more time there than we did, but because it looked like we were getting a weather window and I wanted to uh, get to New Caledonia, uh, we ended up leaving after a few days there. So they got a golf course. I didn't get to try their golf course. I would have. Uh, they they have all kinds of activities and wonderful snorkeling, of course, uh, wonderful diving. Uh, you know, I think the key thing to say about Fiji, right, is they have reefs, wonderful reefs, right? You know, as long as you don't wreck your boat on one of them, uh, like many people have wrote, written about, and like some of my podcast guests, which I've not released their podcast yet, but I will, uh, it, that it they've got some beautiful beautiful reefs uh and a lot of them uh you know then we kind of did the the checkout thing uh and kind of a very industrial city you know i in retrospect uh maybe we could have checked out at a different place i was thinking that vuda point would have been the easiest place to check out and then they convinced me that we needed to go to latoka um but there was maybe a place that was closer to naughty that was we could have checked out a little bit easier i don't know it's hard to say uh we checked out in a very industrial place but it worked out in the end and then we made our way so the the thing with v2 levu is the the south side doesn't have much in the way of reefs there are reefs on the south side but they're not they're not very wide that they don't hold a huge area that you kind of like hit the reef and then you hit the land right um whereas in, on the west side of V2 Levu, the big island, there are reefs that extend way out. So there's a long protected water way. 
and uh, that that means that there's there's kind of more of a cruising ground on the west side, on the leeward side of E2 level. That being said, the day we were going down, there was a, you know a front coming in, and it was very hard to make south progress at some points. And I ended up kind of using the land to kind of shield the seas. So even in the protected waters, it was difficult making south progress so we could get to the exit of the reefs so that we could start the offshore passage. So uh, we ended up on the second leg was to Vanuatu. And as I said, we were waiting for the, the seas to die down. And they did die down. They were smaller than what they were. But this part of the passage had bigger seas, right? Uh, and so I think two times when we were motoring, you know, we would get, we were maybe in three meter seas and then there'd be like this 11 foot wave that'll smack us on the side twice. That would create a huge air bubble in the engine. You know, maybe when we started motoring for some point and maybe we should have stopped motoring, but because uh, of the watch changes, you know, I'm not on top of it all the time because I'm sleeping part of the time. So we kind of, you kind of, if you have a one person who's the captain and you one person who's the maybe less experienced watchkeeper, right? Uh, that you're gonna you're gonna keep uh, conditions fairly steady in a safe way, but maybe not the optimal way, right? In the off watch, right? And so maybe we didn't need the engine at those times. And so when the big wave comes, it smacks us on the side, you know, that rogue wave, then it puts the air bubble in the engine, and then you have to bleed it. Uh, we bled it both times. We were able to get it working. Uh, but that was totally due to the big seas. So, I mean, I think one of the things uh, that we talk about on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, you know, one of our most, maybe our second most popular video is not about a sailboat, is but is about a cruise ship whose engines died in big seas. And it, you know, whether you're talking about a 31 foot boat or a thousand foot boat, there are conditions that can, or at least a 300 foot boat, I don't know about a thousand foot boat, but a 300 foot boat, uh, that there are conditions that can knock out your engines. Uh, and there are big, big seas are, are, are really an issue. So in this case, it was just like air bubbles. Now, we did a lot of work, or I did a lot of work on the slow boat prior to leaving New Orleans, Louisiana, to make sure that we would never get water backing up in the engine. And that's a very typical problem for boats going first time offshore. One editor of Sail Magazine, the cruising editor, had that problem with his very expensive boat offshore first thing. You would have thought a cruising editor, the major sailing magazine would know better, but he didn't. He got it water up his engine. Very typical problem. I think I've talked about it in previous podcasts. Nigel Calder writes about it. We've never had that problem, right? Because we have systems in place. We have loops in place to avoid that change the venting system to avoid that. As an aside, I would say that the only uh, U.S.-based sailing magazines that I think are worth reading are Latitudes and Attitudes, which used to be Cruising Outpost and Good Old Boat. The other ones, I think, are the other ones except for maybe regional ones, but the, na the other national ones are, I think, very transparently designed to sell brand new boats to inexperienced sailors uh, and gloss over any important issues associated with cruising or sailing 
and are really a gigantic advertisement. I would put that Cruising Editors magazine in that category. That's my personal opinion. I wouldn't waste my money on such magazines. But I have been a subscriber to the great magazines of Latitudes and Attitudes, which is written by real cruisers, and Good Old Boat, written by real boat owners, not manufacturers. But big seas will also tend to create air. It, it's better to have more fuel in the engine than less to avoid air or dirt getting stirred up in big seas. But you can't keep the engine topped up completely. In these cases, I think maybe there was three quarters full versus 100% full. Uh, but we did get it started, or I did get it started um, at Blad, and it did work for us for the rest of the trip after the second leading. It was a, it did a great job. The engine did, uh, but that that's that's an issue uh, that. You know, the engine's going to do well in flat seas. It's going to do well, uh, better in following seas. In beam seas or uh, upwind seas, it's going to do worse. Uh, so, you know, that's the thing. Uh, you And, you know, in dead-on seas, you're not going to make much progress in the engine if the, the winds are over 10 knots. Uh, it's just my experience that, you know, you got a 15-knot wind on the nose, that's not that's not a recipe that's going to work. Uh, but if you're talking about offshore, uh, but it, you know, obviously you can tack in those situations or whatever. We didn't need to do that. We were mostly it was mostly like a beam on passage, so we didn't really need our pole. That's the other issue is the pole. So we had the we originally had the pole down, and then I put the pole up. Okay, so the pole is useful if the winds are behind the beam, consistently behind the beam, uh, that will be okay. But if the winds ever go in front of the beam, say you've got this 20 to 30 degree movement in the apparent wind due to the sea state, then the the pole could be problematic. The, the Genoa could be getting backwinded, which is inefficient. Uh, it's not great. It's going to slow you down. So then you need to take down the pole in those circumstances. And so I think the, the passage from Western V2 Levu Fiji to Tana Vanuatu, four-day passage, 450 miles. I think the previous one was like 480 miles. So they're two very similar passages, except the wind angles were very different. To Vanuatu, it was mostly beam on and from Vava Utonga to Suva Fiji it was mostly downwind and so the poles worked out very well but we had a kind of a lot of sail changes I even tried the stay sail pulling that that did not work at all because we were not at downwind enough I ended up having to take down the pole even for the uh, Genoa which was on the leeward side so that it would be okay if we were not dead downwind, if we were like beam reaching, it would have been okay. But if we go forward of beam reaching, then it, it was a problem. And we have a two and a half inch diameter pole. That's the right size, maybe slightly undersized for our 31 foot boat with a four foot bowsprit, right? But I got to say, one of the things that is, you know, really fundamental about the safety of a boat and its size is the size of its pole. A lot of, it's just a myriad of stories are out there of skippers and crew getting hit by their very big poles. And if our boat were 38 feet overall, 
we would need a three inch diameter pole. And as you get bigger, the bigger the pole is. And a three inch diameter pole is like a tree trunk. It is so heavy, a normal human cannot carry it. It needs to be hoisted and all these things. And we hoist our pole too. We've got all the control lines, but it goes beyond the human size. And that if that thing, in, if you're in a uh, situation where it kind of gets out a little out of control, a three-inch pole is going to do some major damage to human beings. Whereas a two-and-a-half-inch pole is, is something that I could carry in a reasonable sea, a two- to three-foot sea on my own without assistance, right? And that's one of the things that makes a smaller boat safer than a larger boat, despite what all the morons in insurance and the the blowhards at the dock say, a smaller boat is safer because the the sails and the, the poles are of a manageable size, of a human size that a human can manage. And if you go much beyond the size of my boat, the those things go beyond a human size. And then you just have instruments of death swinging around in the front of your boat to such a degree that I think a lot of I heard a podcast just this week uh, of a big boat skipper who said, we can't really use the pole on the big boat because it's too dangerous. Well, that obviously is impairing your performance. You got this big boat, so you could sail offshore, but you can't use a pole to go downwind. So now you have to do jibing angles, which slows down your progress, right? Because you're not sailing direct to your location, right? But you bought this big boat, so you would get there faster. Well, that's the fundamental thing, is that a small boat is actually faster than a big boat because you spend less time repairing it in port you know, the, the reason why, you know, for the amount of time that we spend cruising, that we outrun everybody else is because we spend less time in port, right? So if you're going to spend all your time in port, yeah, okay, have a huge floating condo. Uh, but if you're going to, if you actually want to get around the world, you want to get from point A to point B, a big boat's not necessarily going to get you faster there because you're going to spend all your time in port. Uh, and we just don't spend as much time in port. And part of that's just style, that's preferences, that's that I don't feel like, you know, um, I, one of the things my crew member would bring up, well, well, he was like, well, let's visit every island, you know. And I think that that's everybody's thing. Oh, well, let's visit every island. You know, how many islands are there on this earth? How do you define an island? Okay, let's say that it's a piece of solid stuff that is above the water at a uh, high tide. How many of those are in the, the world, right? Do we all stop at all islands that have a palm tree? Do we stop at all islands that have a beach? Do we stop at all islands that have a mountain? Do we stop at all islands that have people on, right? Is that our obligation? Is that my obligation as a sailor that I have to stop at every island there is on Earth, or every coral reef that there is on Earth, and investigate every coral reef. That's not my. That's not my goal. That may be your goal. You can take on that goal, but it's not my goal. Island I did choose to stop at was Tana Vanuatu. 
And why was that? Because A, it, it broke up the trip from Fiji to uh, New Caledonia. So instead of making the trip to New Caledonia a six-day trip, it was only a three-day trip or a two-and-a-half-day trip. Also, Tana is, you know, one of the most southernmost islands in the Vanuatu group, so it doesn't mess up your wind angle too much going to New Caledonia, right? So if you go to Port Vila, really New Caledonia, Nomia is out of way upwind. You don't want to do it. Uh, but Tana, it's doable as long as the wind's not due south, right? We actually had a two-day stopover in Tana because we didn't want to miss our weather window where the winds turned uh, northeast, which allowed us to go south to get to New Caledonia. Uh, and, you know, personally, I, I wouldn't spend more time in Tana. I have no desire to spend more time in Tana. Uh, the thing I'll say about Tana is, uh, okay, so this is firmly in Melanesia, for one thing. Uh, but, you know, the other thing is that the, the drop-off in poverty uh, is big between Melanesia and Polynesia, right? Uh, in, in terms of Vanuatu, Tana Vanuatu versus Fiji, or even the poorest country in in Polynesia, Tonga, it's, it's big, right? So Tonga and the city, they, you know, they've more or less had running water, and electricity, right? You know, and they they didn't have that in in Vanuatu for the most part. Part of it, you know, uh, you know, part of their challenge is they have a very mountainous terrain, so that makes it hard to have internal transport connections. Um, but it, you know, they they're just kind of a it is it's really a a, a different type of region and and i you know if you want to see kind of far poorer countries you know a, Van, a lot of vanuatu a lot of solomons a lot of png it's going to be like that you would think well you go to a poorer country then everything's going to be less expensive but that's not necessarily the case some things that you need are in very short supply so for instance okay so we go there we tell the authorities well in advance that we're going to go into port resolution. I would not have stopped if we couldn't go into port resolution. There's the official port of entry is Lenacal, but they routinely allow you to go into port resolution. They gave me permission to go into port resolution. So I go into port resolution. I arrive on a Sunday. Impressive that the customs people come out on a Sunday. So they come out on a Sunday, drive from Lenacal, 45 kilometer drive through terrible roads and some mountainous terrain, need a 4 by 4 vehicle, very slow drive. They'd normally charge $60 for that. But then they add a condition, which I do not believe that they ever mentioned, was that, that, that I needed to print out the forms for them, which I had emailed to them well in advance before the weekend. Uh, so they were like, well, you need to print them out. I don't have a printer on board. Uh, there's no printer, definitely. Uh, I don't know, maybe the you know one of the chiefs brothers has a printer i don't know uh but there's not like uh kinkos or anything and the yacht club such as it is the port resolution yacht club does not have a printer i don't think they have a vhf i think they just use other cruisers vhf as far as i could tell so they do come out but they're like uh you have to print out the forms and because you didn't print out the forms and you need to come on monday and fill out the forms okay so it's a 70 dollar fee and they said that my crew member had to go there, not just me, but my crew member. So it was a $70 taxi ride. 
on a 4x4 uh, Toyota Hilux truck, right, driven by uh, the brother of the chief to to do that. And okay, I I don't I don't dispute that it's worth $70, right? It's expensive to import a Toyota Hilux truck into Tana Vanuatu. It's a it's not a great task to drive someone there, right? Even if you do have other errands to do, which he did. Uh, and, you know, so it's not, I think that's worth it. Uh, but do I think that I had to pay the fee to the customs agent and the fee to the chief's uh, brother? Do I think that's a little excessive? Yes, I do. I think that's excessive. I don't think all cruisers had to do that. I don't think that the reason that they made me do it was okay. I, the only silver lining was I was able to get diesel and gas while there um, because I just threw those in the truck as as we got there, as we had arrived, and they were willing to do it because it's just a long drive each way. And so uh, they, they filled that. Uh, so where do you, what do you do in Tana? Everybody wants to uh, climb Mount Yasur, and climbing is is should be put in quotations so there's a road up mount uh, yasur which is a volcano so me and alex saw a red light as we were approaching tana and it was it was a big red light you know it was kind of an ill-shapen red light what was that red light it was the uh lava clouds that we were seeing. So it was the reflection of the lava in the in the dust ash that Mount Yasur, which is constantly erupting, uh, was throwing off, right? So I don't think we saw any, like, real lights in Tana. Uh, maybe there was, like, one that was on land, uh, but uh, there was that huge red light. So I think, you know, Captain Cook, who was the first European to sail into Port Resolution, probably picked it out by the volcano light uh <laughs> more than anything uh and and so uh the the soggy paws guide and i think nude site and also uh lonely planet right are outdated in the cost of a guided tour of mount yasur so uh i think more recently there has been a park created and a monopoly created for that park and they have kind of a uh Disney-esque two-hour tour that they do around dusk. And that tour that used to cost maybe $20 from your local guide costs $100 from the sole tour operator. And, you know, the Yacht Club guide is is Stanley, and he was not honest with us about this. He did not warn us about this cost. He tried to make us think that the cost of driving us there was also the cost of guiding us up to there. And we ended up finding out that it was $25 per person to get a ride there, which is a 30-minute ride, which is kind of a ripoff. It's going to take you half a day to walk there. You know, I, I and I also, I've got to say that I think that the security situation in Vanuatu is not great and that if you are not paying the Yacht Club, if you are not paying uh, the chief's brother, then I, I'm not sure that that's safe. Uh, so I would highly recommend that you do uh, have good relations, especially with the chief's brother, uh, and pay him for all his services. Uh, but so we paid him $25 per person to get there and then get back. So there's a round trip ticket uh, on the truck. And then we had to pay $100 per person to go on the tour. Now, is that worth it? I don't know. I, that, that's that's up to you. Um, 
we were planning on doing the volcano hike. I'm happy that I did it. I guess the other thing I'm going to say about visiting Tana is that you probably should not visit Tana if you have back problems because the 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 trips that you're going to make both up the mountain uh, to Mount Yasur or on the 4x4 to get to the, the park where you pay $100 uh, are really hard, really jarring. And if you have the slightest back problems, which neither of us did, that would be awful. I, it was, I think it was okay. The tour was okay. Um, you go to the rim of Yasur, which is like a, like you're climbing up an ash heap, right? And, um, you can see the, the, the glow of the lava better at night than during the day, uh, is putting out a lot of ash. You know, one of the things they have you wear hard hats, like just in in case some lava is going to get high enough to hit you. Uh, they don't let you go down into the crater. Uh, we did see some people that were sneaking down into the crater. I don't know if they were on our tour or on some sort of bootleg tour. Um, potentially, you probably could get hit there. Uh, but in on the top rim, it would have to be a pretty violent explosion, I think, an unusual explosion. Certainly, they said there's a level five. They don't take people out in more than level two, maybe three. I don't know. They said the day we were there was level two. There were maybe some like lava that went up to the kind of the lower part of the dip of the crater where we're on the rim and you have to go down that lower lip. So we saw some lights down there of some uh, intrepid fellows that were violating the tour that did that uh, so potentially there you could get hit by some debris but i think the greater risk is that you kind of inhale um poisonous gas or, or deadly gas they don't give you gas masks they they, they mentioned that maybe you should have a dust mask uh when you get there uh, so one of the things soggy paws never mentions is wear a dust mask i think most boats have a dust mask in them because you know that's kind of goes with cleaning the hull and that type of thing it just is a common thing you, you do on a uh, kind of your own boat repair. So that would be my advice is to bring a dust mask. It's only a two-hour tour, so you're probably not going to starve to death. Uh, probably not going to get too thirsty in the cruising season because it's going to be late during the day, and you're not going to get that hot because you're not really climbing that much. You climb, They drive you almost all the way up to the rim of the crater, and then there's like 100 feet to walk up. Um, but then, you, yeah, I mean, the total walk maybe a mile because you're walking around the crater they'll take you like oh, i don't know they might take you halfway across the crate the the top rim uh on a given day I, I you know i got tired of walking around it and i ended up flying the drone furtively over it so maybe you'll get some, to see some of the drone footage of that i don't know how spectacular that is um i was not willing to, to sacrifice my drone for a picture because i really don't make any money from the videos so the wasn't worth it to me to kill my spark drone for that it, it actually flew it today and it was a little it was a little uh, uh the the gimbals were not moving as well as they were because they were kind of clogged with ash so i think if i would have flown it lower closer in i might have lost it so that's it i saw another guy flying a mavic i don't know what happened to him with that if he retrieved his mavic or not uh but my spark survived uh the so that was okay and then then we left um so we left on tuesday and we took advantage of the the kind of northeast winds right to normally southeast or south winds 
in the South Pacific, right, trades. Uh, so we had this northeast wind. So we went due magnetic south, which was actually south-southwest for, you know, the first 20 hours, let's say. And then we started curving more southeast until we were going, uh, or southwest. We were curving southwest until we were doing true southwest so we're like uh doing uh 225 whereas the the winds uh eventually turned from northeast uh to southeast so it was like we we were beam reaching kind of most of the way right it was the easiest passage by far in terms of the the conditions right there were no engine problems because of the the waves were uh, you know, almost nothing. I mean, like one to two meters closer to one meter, uh, sometimes nothing right offshore. Uh, and what we're trying to do is get south of this island of Mari, which is on the Loyalty Island. So New Caledonia, like all these other places, right? The port of entry is, is you know, far west of the first island group you hit. So there's like Mare, uh, which has no port of entry. If you go to the north side of Mare, uh, not, not only are you kind of, you know, getting close to different hazards like islands and reefs, uh, you, you also are really killing your wind angle. So you have to kind of go more south southwest which is you know that that's a challenging wind angle to go in most conditions and and so we wanted to get south of mare we did make that it was like a picture perfect passage uh you know starting out the passage i was thinking that we would probably definitely have to anchor as soon as we got inside of the reefs of grand terre which is the big island which is the big long 250 kilometer long island uh where nomia is that would we think of new caledonia we think of the grand terre uh, and so I thought we'd have to anchor in there and, and wait for daylight because we'd just never be able to time it perfectly. But we timed it more or less perfectly. Uh, we entered the reef at, at about 7.30. We probably could have entered a little earlier, but I wanted to make sure that I, you know, I got as much rest as I could before I went on watch at seven. Uh, and I didn't, I slowed us down so that, so that we wouldn't get into the reef until, until, uh, after seven uh and then uh we got in there we had a huge current pushing us in once i once i started aiming for the entrance and and put it on the engine and 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 trying to go fast versus going slow all night purposely uh then uh we're going like over eight knots so there's a tremendous current there uh there's another current as you so we were kind of on the southeast side on the the southwest side there's also a little channel that has a tremendous current it was against us but it was only about two knots whereas we had three to four knots for us in the end uh we got the better of the currents we got into it was like flat calm on the south side which is like there's no people on the south side we saw a few sailboats going through uh, but that was it uh and there's a lot of reefs there's a lot of anchorages there's a lot of uh you know places if you wanted to you know have your remoteness you could have it uh and then experience nature however you like to experience it whether it's diving or snorkeling the reef or you know walking the secluded beach or hiking the secluded hill uh that all that would be possible on the rugged south side of grand terre the big island of nomi of new caledonia uh but you're supposed to proceed directly to nomia to check in that's the only 
only port of entry in New Caledonia. Well, there's there's another port of entry on the Loyalty Islands, but we weren't near that, uh, and that is discouraged. But anyways, so anyways, we're trying. You're supposed to proceed directly to the port of entry. That was what I was trying to do. Uh, I was given it the full engine to do that. We had plenty of fuel to do that, uh, and we made it into Port Mosul is where you're supposed to go. Uh, at 3:30, uh, we were able to dock there. There was a space in Port Mosul. Kind of tight in these marinas, so I think if you're kind of late in the season, when I think most people visit New Caledonia, uh, then you might not be able to find a place to to uh, a slip in Port Mosul or even a Port de Sud Marina. But since we're early in the season, uh, we got a space. Thankfully, uh, I'll just say you know one thing about like when do people go to New Caledonia? I think early in the season people will skip New Caledonia, right? So we there was American boat we saw in in Tanavanuatu, they're going to go up the Vanuatu chain, go up the Solomons, go to PNG, and then maybe they'll dip down to Northern Territory, Australia, right? Late in the season, right, closer to October, people are going to be skipping stuff. So they're going to skip to Nomia, and then they're going to skip straight to Queensland. So I think that's going to be the, the busy time for Nomia in terms of foreign boats right now. Uh, it's just mostly local boats. Uh, you know, they love their sailing here in Nomia. It's just a huge sailing community. They have tremendous resources. I mean, I think the key thing about this was that last leg was like 40 miles of hazards and reefs. You don't want to do it at night. And you're coming off two days at sea. That can be very tiring, especially for the skipper, right? If you if you're sailing near hazards, you don't want to be sleeping, right? You don't want to be doing a watch schedule anymore. You want to be up and watching and if not at the helm, next to the helm, aware of what's going on. And uh, I was able to find like one stretch as we kind of rounded the southwest side uh, and there was a big just open stretch and there's really nothing going on. I was able to get like an hour, hour and 15 minutes nap and that that helped a lot uh, to be able to give the helm for the first time, really, uh, to Alex uh, as, you know, before we got close to Nomia. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's that that's the problem with these kind of ports of entry is that they kind of really tax the skipper because you have once you are no longer offshore sailing once you are coastal sailing it's a lot more dangerous you need to be a lot more aware you can't really rely on watches anymore uh you're more likely to have ships where that uh, people are going to, your your crew is going to be told to wake you up when they see lights or other boats. And that's totally true. For instance, like as soon as I entered the pass, right, there was a third, there was a ferry that was going 34 knots, 34 knots. I'd never seen a boat go so fast as that thing. I ended up hailing them on VHF to verify what their you know, which way we should pass. You know, my instinct of where we were passed was wrong because they were going to make a turn and they wanted to make a turn. And had we not like hailed, uh, we would have got a lot closer than we ended up doing. But all's well that ends well. We docked before the marina closed at four and we docked before sunset at 5.30, checked in the next day on Friday and beat the weekend. Pretty much picture perfect for the Nomia passage. And we'll talk more about Nomia maybe in a future episode and bring you a podcast guest.
I'm Linus Wilson. You've been listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing and make a pledge, and then you can get one of our free audiobooks like my book, How to Sail Around the World, part-time, so you can do what I'm doing, uh, or Slow Boat to Cuba at a higher pledge level. Uh, you also get, a, a, a at any pledge level, you get Sailing to Treasure Island, the the audiobook. These are all audiobook versions. Uh, and at any pledge level, you get all our bonus episodes. Check out my books on Amazon.com, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, Slow Boat to Cuba, and also the books that I've edited, um, Mabel Stock, Sailing the Ogre, and... Sailing to Treasure Island by Captain J.C. Voss, the classic. If you got something positive to say, write a rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you like. I'm Linus Wilson. Some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.